Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Thank you, Brandon. We are so excited for our sermon series for the next couple of months in June and July. Is This Is My Story. And part of our story is that Pastor John Mindorf has been a faithful minister of the gospel here at OKC First Church for 25 years. And we're going to celebrate his 25th anniversary on August 2nd when he returns. But from this time until that time, we have an opportunity to hear from a variety of guests who are going to be preaching the word for us week in and week out. That's a picture of John back there. Please be praying for he and his family this summer as John prays and reads and spends time with his kids. I think this week they're at a soccer tournament in Louisiana, and so please pray for Pastor John. We're excited for the opportunity for him to be away. The board had asked him, go rest, go play, go pray, and so I hope that he gets a chance to do that this summer. We each week have an opportunity to hear from a different speaker, and this morning we have an opportunity to hear from Dr. Jess Middendorf, who will be speaking. He has many titles and degrees, but he likes to go by one, and I was only allowed to give one. So this is John's dad. And so as he, he may speak at other places, uh, they may go on and on, but um, under strict rules from Jess. Here's Jess, John's dad. But I want to recognize his wife, Susan, who's right here. Jess's wife, you celebrated 51 years anniversary this week. Congratulations to Jess and Susan. We love you. Love you. Um, for eight years, I've sat off of John's right hand um, for in this pew, and I love that role. And this morning, I had another Middendorf right there I could look up at, and we are excited uh, to hear from him this morning. Please welcome Dr. Jess Middendorf. Thank you. What a great privilege it is to be here. I... Uh, I'm the short member of the family. <laughs> John and uh, Kelly uh, send their love. We talked to them for a little bit yesterday. and uh, John is missing this place. He's going through withdrawals, and it's pretty serious right now. But uh, he sends his love, all the family does. And on Susan's behalf, she and I would like to just say to you how much we love you for the way you love our family. Uh, what John means to you means more to us than we can say. Uh, we've, uh, we knew him before. <laughs> oh, brother, did we know him before. Uh, you know, John went through one of those growth spurts where we used to tell people, if you're real quiet, you can hear him grow. He would just explode in growth over a, just a brief period of time. And always fun to grow up with John. John was... Uh, the laid-back one. If you, if you, when he was a little tyke, if you brought his blanket with him, wherever you put the blanket, he was asleep. I mean, he just, even as a toddler, the blanket was his security blanket, and he was fine wherever we were, and we were often involved in various things. There was also Marlo. You remember Marlo? Marlo's his younger sister. I. John would walk into the room, and the atmosphere just gets kind of quiet and mellow, and Marlo walks in the room, and the walls begin to shake, and the lights go up, and the volume increases. 
And there's Jim who walks in and just kind of dances his way around everything. We've had an interesting family. It's, uh, well, we have three kids, one of each, and we've often tried to explain that to others. How can three kids raised by the same two parents in one home turn out as differently as they do for one another? Any of you have kids? You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? And it's, uh, it's fun to look back and to celebrate. I, I do confess to you that I worship with you most Sundays. It may be a day or two later, but Susan and I love to hear you worship together and to hear John proclaim the word. He is somewhat by default our uh, pastor, so we love hearing him. Thanks for all that you mean to them. They love you passionately, and it's great that you've given them this time to do a little recuperation. Well, <clears throat> this is my story. I love to eat. <laughs> if I were to give a title to today's sermon, it is You Are What You Eat, and I'm pretty good proof of that myself. I've I like a lot of stuff. I love a good steak. Oh my goodness, do I love a good steak. I love barbecue. I live in, well, um, I'm in Oklahoma, and I hate to say this out loud, but I live in the barbecue capital of the world in Kansas City. And it is interesting that for years, the number one barbecue place in Kansas City was called Oklahoma Joe's. I don't, can't <laughs> quite figure that one out. But uh, I love to eat. For 12 years, I traveled around the world as a general superintendent in the church. And I think among the things I loved as much as anything else about the job was eating with the people. Nazarenes love to eat. That's not just a U.S. thing. It's not just a local thing here. It's true around the world, as, as the crows would know. Everywhere you go, Nazarenes are known for good meals and eating together. The fellowship around a table is one of the best places you can find Nazarenes. And it's great fun for me to have traveled in many different places. I do have to confess, I did find a few things I could give you some advice about not eating. Number one, if they ever offer you camel, politely decline. Oh, my word. Uh, there are a few other things. In China, the little tiny peppers they say are not that hot. You'll know for three or four days when you've eaten that pepper. It just sort of works its way around. It's, it's amazing. But there are many, many delicious things I've eaten around the world. I've loved watching people eat. I love seeing the gardens they've grown. I've seen gardens in the strangest places. You know, here in Oklahoma, where we lived for five years, and I drove across northwest Oklahoma repeatedly, just year-round, seeing the fields in Oklahoma and seeing these acres and acres and acres and acres of wheat. I loved to see it. I mean, it was just fun for me to watch through the seasons of the planting and the winter wheat and the cattle grazing on the winter wheat. They're being taken off before it reached that first jointing as spring came, and then the wheat began to grow, and then it began to turn, and finally the great harvesters, the gleaners would come across. I loved watching that. I was in uh, several parts of the world, different places in the world, where the gardens were not quite that flat. I have a picture or two of a mountainside where it's a pretty good-sized mountain, and every square foot is a garden, all on the side of the mountain. And you see people standing there with one foot up in the air, or at least with a knee bent, and the other foot well down below it, and they're both on the ground, and they're trying to till the soil. And 
plant the, the crops and reap the crops. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how crops can stay on the side of a hill that steeply, but they seem to feed everybody in the area. I've enjoyed watching the different ways that agriculture and horticulture has been practiced around the world. I've just had a great fascination with it, in part because agricultural and horticultural ideas and, and concepts are throughout Scripture. In fact, uh, Scripture and food kind of go together. You, you do realize that Scripture opens in a garden and ends at a banquet? I love it. It's just sort of put together in the, the sense that we enjoy this idea of eating and cultivating and growing. There are many things in Scripture that uh, make reference to crops. And so uh, I've also enjoyed seeing the foliage. I was in Papua New Guinea, and I heard a pastor giving a report, and he said, we live in the most beautiful place in the world. Well, I couldn't deny it. We were at about 7,000 feet elevation. The year-round temperature varied about 6 degrees. It was always at least 70 degrees and no warmer than about 80 degrees. It was just an amazing place to live. And the tropical vegetation was just dense. Flowers that we pay hundreds of dollars for grew wild there. It was just beautiful. And he kept talking about how beautiful they live, the most beautiful place in the world. I could agree with him. It was there I ate one of those uh, meals that I'll never quite forget. It was, uh, it was a roast pig roasted underground on hot rocks wrapped in banana leaves. A huge pig, huge, cooked so well that when the time came at the conclusion of the service and this this odor, this aroma was just wafting through the open-sided tabernacle as we were, were there together. And as we were waiting for that uh, meal to begin, I could hardly stand it. My mouth watered the entire time I preached. And then they opened it all up and began to peel back the dirt and the rocks. And then they peeled back the, uh, the uh, uh, palm leaves and began to carve the hog. It was just delicious. I was warned, though, that it probably was the one place they could guarantee that I would come back with stomach issues. I traveled for 12 years and ate food around the world, three and a half million miles, about 100 times around the world in the, in the 12 years, and never got sick eating food anywhere until I got back to the U.S., I discovered that food defines us. And in many ways, seeing the people around the world, I could say it with pretty good uh, observation, you are what you eat. I mean, uh, some of the folks in the Mediterranean area eat this wonderful Mediterranean diet. Boy, was it good. And their physique shows it. I'm going to come back to the U.S., and our physique shows that we enjoy eating, doesn't it? There are many places that I saw the beautiful trees, and one of the places was the Middle East. We had the privilege of going to Lebanon, and we visited a forest, a forest of the cedars of Lebanon. Oh, my word. Did you know it takes 10 years for a seed to grow four inches, a plant four inches high, 10 years from seed to four-inch high plant? The cedars that we saw were there well before the time of Christ. 
They're ancient trees, twisted and gnarled in some cases, others of them just as straight as an arrow. Amazing variety in the cedars of Lebanon. Do you realize how many times in the scripture references made to the cedars of Lebanon? Many of the building materials of the temple were built from the cedars of Lebanon and beautiful. It must have been absolutely gorgeous. In the scriptures are several places where references made to cedars and comparisons made that are, that are amazing. Listen to this description. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 31. In the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, mortal say to the Pharaoh king of Egypt and to his hordes, whom are you like in your greatness? Consider Assyria, a cedar of Lebanon with fair branches and forests shaded of great height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, made its rivers flow around the place where it was planted, sending forth streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots, and the birds of the air made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the animals of the field gave birth to their young, and its shade, all great nation, in its shade all great nations lived. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant water. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. The ordinary trees were as nothing compared to its branches, no tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. Wow, what a description. And Ezekiel is speaking a word from God and he's saying to the Israelites, to the Israelites who were at the time that he is speaking in exile. It occurred, it began in about 597 BC. We can pretty well date it. We've got the times in 597 BC. When, when the Babylonians assaulted Jerusalem and Judea, Judah, and they, they, took, um, they took captives and, and, and took them out of their land, the, the worst thing you could do for a devout Jew was to take them out of the land, because land signified so much of the promises of God to the people of God. But here there were exiles taken out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, and, and they were they were they were displaced, they were taken to Babylon, they were, they were settled in other areas, and they were given land and given responsibilities, but they were not home. And they lived in a time of incredible chaos, confusion. It was terrible. The things they remembered, the things they loved were gone. They, they couldn't get back there. They were under domination. It was in such a terrible set of circumstances that, that during a 10-year, 11-year period of time from 597 to 586, Jerusalem itself was under siege, especially the last two years. And finally, Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed and the temple done away with, and everything they had counted on was gone. It was incredibly, disastrously impacting the life and the psyche of everyone. We hear a lot today about post-traumatic stress syndrome. 
In many ways, what is described in the book of Ezekiel about the people of God in exile would characterize, could be characterized by post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, it was amazing. It is amazing to read what is going on there. They are under such siege and constant oppression that all the things they wanted to do and be, they couldn't. Ezekiel, you see, was a priest himself, had trained for the priesthood, and now he had been deported, had been exiled, and could not offer the sacrifices and the service in the temple. It was traumatic for him. And he was this priestly prophet or this prophetic priest. Somehow God spoke into his life and through him to the exiles, trying to give them some kind of hope. And it sounds interesting, doesn't it, that uh, the hope he's giving to them is about one of their oppressors, Egypt. Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and the Medes and others were, were all battling, vying continuously for that little piece of land today we call the Holy Land. And it was in constant turmoil, had been for years, because the people of God had forgotten their God. Oh, they worshiped. They still were offering the sacrifices. They were at the temple. But between times they were at the temple, it was as if God did not exist. It's just sort of secular. Ever heard that word? Where when secularism just seemed to define the people of God and eventually they just lost everything. One of their oppressors was Egypt. And God said to the people in exile, uh, yeah, you're afraid of Egypt, aren't you? Do you remember Assyria? In an earlier season, Assyria had been the oppressor, the aggressor, the destroying one. And so they were constantly afraid of Assyria, battling Assyria, being exiled, many of them, by Assyrians. And, and so now here's God speaking through Ezekiel to the exile, saying, you remember Assyria? Assyria was the biggest, the best, the most profitable, the, the, the most dominating nation of any kind. It, it, was, it was the cream of the crop, and everybody looked to Assyria. They drew from the resources of Assyria. Assyria was the dominating power. What said God? You remember what it was like? If I had read on, he would have told this story. There's going to come a time when every limb will be broken. The tree will be destroyed. It will be down on the ground and wild birds will find their place in the broken limbs and wild animals will wander around the stumps on the ground. It's coming. You see, the Israelites, the people of God, had, had begun to live their lives in that same kind of pride. They remembered David and Solomon and the era of power and position and strength and dominance. And, and it becomes awfully easy when you live in that kind of a culture to begin to allow yourself to feed on the privileges of the culture. Position, possessions, power, prestige. And it was in the feeding on that kind of culture that cost 
Israel everything. Now they're in exile. They're in trauma. They've lost everything, and it looks as if their God has been defeated. He's done in. The gods of the Babylonians have won out. And the gods of the Egyptians are continually raising up their ugly heads. And so our God is nothing. Their gods are everything. And Ezekiel says, you remember Assyria, don't you? Assyria is no more. It's just dust. Well, that's where Egypt is headed. Because if you're not for, if, you, if you're not careful, you'll forget the fact that in spite of all that is going on here, in spite of all that you allowed in your own life, in spite of all the disaster you brought on by your own buying into that culture and feeding on that kind of diet of power and position and prestige and privilege and all of those kinds of things, if, if you're not careful, you'll believe that, that that is what Assyria has found. Well, they're gone now. And that you, you believe that perhaps Egypt has all those things to offer, but soon Egypt is going to be gone. And what Ezekiel is trying to tell them is this. Anytime you feed yourself on the culture around you, as if the culture has the last word and we can be defined by the culture when we, we can allow ourselves to be shaped by what we are living in and around. When that occurs, you can lose everything. But Ezekiel has another part of the story. Ezekiel is saying to them, here's what you need to know. Assyria fell, and Egypt will fall, and eventually Babylonia will fall, because behind it all is not a king or a pharaoh or a potentate of any kind who can endure forever. The only hope there is is in the God who behind all of this other stuff is still the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who's made promises he will not forget. And if you could read further in the letter or the, the prophecy of Ezekiel, you'd, you'd begin to realize that Ezekiel is saying there's something coming. Boy, is it coming. Trauma doesn't have the last word. I've... I've experienced trauma. I've observed it up close and personal. People in Oklahoma City understand trauma and chaos about as well as anybody in the world. We remember the Murrah building. I was elected in 2001 to be a general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene, and we had our first meeting as a board in September. And on the 11th of September, I was in the office for the first day of our meetings. My colleague, Dr. Paul Cunningham, and I were the first two there, and we were conversing. And uh, a secretary rushed into the room, the office where we were, and she said, have you, have you seen the news? Have you heard the news? Well, no. About that time, my phone rang, and it was my daughter Marlo, and she said, Dad, are you, are you watching television? 
No, I said, I'm, I'm at the office. Oh, Dad, you've got to find a television. You've got to see what's going on. And then I heard her exclaim, oh, my Lord, no, no. And I said, what? What is going on? She said, Dad, an airplane hit one of the Twin Towers. And while I was talking to you, a second airplane hit the second tower. Well, I was a brand new general superintendent, been elected in June, and this was September. And I just understood the role of being in jurisdiction here and there in various places in the world. And I was reminded suddenly by my colleague, Dr. Paul Cunningham, who said to me, Jess, I think you're in jurisdiction in Washington, D.C. and New York City. And the next several months of my life were characterized by going back and forth into New York City and Washington, D.C., into Ground Zero, helping to coordinate the work of our compassionate ministries in disaster relief. I don't know how to describe to you what it was like to go into Ground Zero while the fires were still burning. I've been to New York City many times in my life. I'd never been to New York City anything like the New York City I saw the first time I got there. Horns, traffic driver, or taxi drivers blowing their horns constantly. The cacophony of sound and noises in New York City are part of the fascination of that great city. But that day, you could hear a pin drop. No horns blaring. People talking in whispers. It was astounding. The shock. The trauma was unbelievable. Four years later, to the week that I made my first trip to New York City, I stood on the shores of the Gulf of Mexico in the aftermath of Katrina, in jurisdiction again in a disaster. Within months, I was in jurisdiction in Asia Pacific and had to be there in the aftermath of the Christmas tsunami where hundreds of thousands of people were literally washed away. I was kidnapped, abducted in Africa in 2010. Wish I could describe to you what it's like to suddenly be in the midst of a circumstance where you know you have no control. Trauma. Awesome. Incoherence. Disruption. Those of you who have been in combat, those of us who know others who have been in combat can understand something of the trauma. This post-traumatic stress disorder is something about which all of us should be very concerned for our colleagues who may have been through that. Because you don't just lay it down. Ezekiel was speaking into post-traumatic stress. It's hell, he said. You just don't shake your head and walk away from it. It consumes you. It owns you. It shapes you. It molds you. 
I was listening to Scott Daniels preach a little while back and suddenly heard him describing the experience of the church of Jesus Christ in days like this, and he described it as being in exile. And he began to talk about the fact that sometimes we feel as if we ourselves are going through the chaos and incoherence of such rapid change and things not being like we remember them. That it's awfully hard to believe, is God still there? Well, Ezekiel tried to tell us something. In the midst of it all, don't feed on the, the, the diet of secularism, of pride and possessions, of positions, of prestige and privilege. And don't dare feed on chaos and incoherence because that produces such despair that you wonder if there is any hope at all. I, I, I spend some time on social media and uh, I still got a lot of correspondence from people around the world and across the U.S. and the Church of the Nazarene. And I have to tell you, there's a lot of time when I'm receiving communication from people who feel like we're in chaos. It's incoherent. It's traumatic. And I hear some of them acting as if somehow God failed. It's over. And then I begin to remember the manger in Bethlehem. And I begin to remember a life walking through those same parts of the world. A life in, in contact with brokenness sin and disease and all kinds of trauma, of abuse, sexual abuse and physical abuse and all of the kinds of abuse you could name. He was in contact with it. We have accounts of it in Scripture. And then we saw how all of that utterly gathered around him and finally said, whatever it is you are and whatever it is you're trying to say, we don't want it, we don't like it. And they killed him. But we have an Easter celebration. And on an Easter Sunday morning, we get together and we celebrate. He's back. And boy, is he back. And now, 2,000 years later, sometimes we get the feeling that maybe he did come back then, but do you know what's going on now? Chaos and incoherence and trauma and tragedy. And we watch as 30 Egyptian believers are beheaded, and we say, where's God? Well, I received an interesting article of someone who was reading the lips of the 30 who were dressed in those red suits and were about to be beheaded, reading their lips as they spoke their language and said to a person, they were all saying as they were told to kneel just as they were about to be executed and on their lips were these words, Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh friend. It doesn't matter what else may be going on around us. If we can believe that, 
If we can believe that God is still God in spite of what is going on in the world around us, then maybe we can make a little more sense out of this passage that Mandy read a few moments ago from the fourth chapter of the book of Mark. Here's what the kingdom is like, he said. It's uh, as if someone would scatter seed on the ground, sleep and rise at night and day. The next thing you know, it's growing. It just grows. All by itself, it grows. I've never seen a Kansas farmer stand over his field and yell, grow. I've never seen them beating the ground to get the wheat out. I've watched in admiration as I've watched some of our Nazarenes across northwest Oklahoma as they would plant the crop and then many of them, one of them especially would say to me, every time I turn off the tractor after having drilled the wheat, I say to God, it's in your hands. Well, it, it seems as if this might be a pretty good parable for us. The earth produces of itself first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. And when the grain is ripe, it goes to harvest it. And then he goes on to say, with what can we compare the kingdom? It's like a mustard seed. Almost too small to see. But when you plant it, given time and conditions that God alone will determine it will bear fruit you see we've got to learn to feed ourselves on hope this God who was the God of Hebrews even in exile this God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ even on the cross is the God who raised him from the dead and whom you and I celebrate every time we get together here and we start feeding on the bread and blood of Christ. And a lot of other things you can feed on and you'll probably, many of you will leave here today and you'll go home to a delicious meal that is already in the oven or you'll order it from the menu and your mouth is probably salivating already. But that's just temporary stuff. It's when we get together here at this place and we hear someone say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you. It's when we feed on this that we realize whatever the trauma around here, we have our hope in Christ. Let me ask you, what are you feeding on? I want to invite you today to feed on him. In the Gospel of John, we, we don't have the initiation of the Lord's Supper in the, in the last evening of his time together. The disciples, it is found in the other Gospels, but in the Gospel of John, it's not in that 13th chapter. But earlier in the Gospel, in the 8th chapter, He's talking about them, uh, talking to them, and he talks about, I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats my body and drinks my blood, they have life. He's come that we might have life. In the face of all the incoherence and trauma around us, we have 
hope in Christ. So this morning, the table is set. The menu is prepared. And I'm going to ask you this morning to join me as we take the bread and the cup. Because I believe very firmly today you are what you eat. Don't eat the wrong food. Don't eat spiritual camel. Eat the real food. The food that is Christ. You will come from your pew exiting to your left and to the front to people who will be standing there and one of them will have a piece of bread. Cup your hands and receive it. You don't take it. Receive it. And hear them say this is the body of Christ. You will take that piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup and you'll hear someone say this, this is the blood of Christ. Right then and there. Take it. Eat it. If you'd like to find a place to pray these altars are here for you. The padded altars, as you always know, are for those who would like to be anointed for healing. Whatever that kind of healing may be, we believe in the prayer for healing. That as we prepare to feed ourselves on the body and blood of Christ, would you remember that we come together every week to do this, every week to do this, to remind ourselves the other food just never satisfies. This is the diet of life. Let's pray. Oh God, these elements, these emblems of your son's broken body and shed blood are for us today. We confess to you how easily we feed ourselves on the diet the cultures offer us. And we find out sometimes, oh, so gruesomely, it doesn't satisfy, but initially it tastes so good and feels so good, but yet today we are reminded that ultimately this is the only diet that satisfies. So we offer to you these emblems of your broken body and shed blood. We are reminded that on the night he was betrayed, our Father took, our, our Savior took bread, and when he had broken it, blessed it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat this, all of you, this is my body. And after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, oh Father. We eat and drink a diet of hope this morning, a diet of forgiveness. We come in repentance and confession, but we also come with faith and we receive with joy. In the strong and matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Make your way to the left out of your pew and down the aisle. Come to these who serve. This is the body and blood of Christ.
pieces seem to shatter to gather off the floor and all that seems to matter is that I can't feel you anymore no I don't feel That is a reason to see.
Father, in these moments, <laughs> we need a reason to sing. We find it in you, in the gift of your Son, who loves us so immensely, abundantly, lavishly, relentlessly pursuing us in his love. We have a reason to sing. We're grateful today, Lord, that in the face of all of the other narratives of the world, we've found our hope in Jesus. We dare not trust any other hope, any alternative offering. You and you alone are our hope. Thank you for feeding us on the body and blood of your Son. Thank you that through the power of your Holy Spirit indwelling with us, we are sustained and empowered to live lives that are pleasing to you. You long for us. You long for us so deeply that nothing will hinder your effort to reach us. God, may we respond with a longing for you that consumes every alternative source. May we find everything we need in you. We ask all of this in the strong name of the one who gave himself for us and will come again. We're going to continue in a few moments of prayer as we continue to respond to the grace and love of our Lord. These moments of prayer will be for intercession for those in our life and in our world who need specific touches from our Lord. And we want to pray for those who recently or even in the past have experienced a trauma that has been so life-altering that darkness does not seem that it could be overcome. And so if you or if someone you know has experienced a trauma that has led to a post-traumatic stress syndrome that seems like it cannot be overcome, we give, the, we give these moments to pray for you and your loved ones for a healing touch from our Lord. God, we ask that you would speak peace and love and hope into dark situations. We ask, God, you would speak healing and hope and love into some of our members who need specific touches from you. I don't see Debbie McKenzie this morning, but ask, God, you would bless her. She's here. Good. Received her last treatment of radiation this week. Lord, heal Debbie. Lord, we ask you would heal June as she continues to seek treatment, to be healed from cancer. And God, would you come alongside of June and her whole family and bless and be and heal her. We ask you to be with our good friend and faithful member since he was a boy, Bob Corey, 
in the hospital this week, asking for your healing in his life. God, would you be and heal Bob Corey? Lord, we ask you would be with Gerald and Frida Human, especially Frida. Lord, we ask you would bring healing and restoration to her life. There are others, whether it's on the prayer notes in front of you or that you carried into this place, you knew someone needed a specific touch of healing, whether that be physical or relational. In these moments, pray for that person who you know God needs to touch and heal. As we heard this morning from a man who has traveled around the world, Time and again, we pray for the work of the Church of the Nazarene and the kingdom of God around the world, specifically as we have an opportunity to impact places like Zambia, Haiti, our friends who serve in Japan, places like Toronto and Toronto City Mission, places like Cactus, Texas. Lord, prepare hearts as we have mission trips on the way to Texas, Toronto, and Zambia this summer. Prepare the hearts and your harvest in those places, but also prepare the hearts of those who are preparing to go that the world and their lives might be changed. Lord, thank you for the mission field. And Lord, the harvest that is ripe right in our own neighborhood. Thank you for these kids that come Monday through Thursday to our summer kids club summertime, their lives and their smiles and their laughter and their mischievousness. Lord, we thank you for these kids and the opportunity you've given us to have them here. And we ask God that their lives and our lives might be changed. Lord, we are grateful for the people who you are shaping us to be. May we look more and more like Christ each and every day and each and every week. May, Lord, the practice as we go, we lay our head down and we rise. And sometimes, God, we do not know how, but it is your grace that has transformed us time and time again to look like your son. May it be so. And may it be so by this prayer that we have prayed time and again, the prayer you taught your disciples to pray. And this morning, we will pray together using debts and debtors. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.